one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 327 for the week of Sunday, June 26, 2011. I'm um, Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Good evening, Sawyer. How are you doing today? Doing great, thank you. And welcome as well, Mark Radman. Good to be here. Good to be here. Glad to have you with us and Gina will be back with us on our next episode. In the meantime, let's begin things off with the final flight of the Space Shuttle Atlantis, which last week we made the big announcement that the entire Talking Space team will be there. But before we get there, we need to check up on the vehicle herself and see how her engine valve is and how the stringers are doing. So, Gene, can you help us out with that, please? Yeah, sure. Um, the uh, It looks like a test was performed on that uh, number three engine uh, to make sure that uh, that valve was working properly. It looks like it is. Um, a uh, stringer inspection was performed on uh, external tank number 138, and looks like that's all go. And the uh, the final flight readiness review uh, will be tomorrow, Tuesday, June June 28th. We're recording this on Monday, June 27th. So as of right now, um, from what I'm I'm sort of seeing out there, and from what I'm I'm sort of reading the tea leaves and looking at my magic eight ball, I don't think there's anything standing in our way right now, knock on wood here, uh, for a, a approval for a launch attempt on July 8th at 1126 a.m. as planned. So it's great that everything's looking good. And I love how they're calling this one not the FRR, which is normally the flight readiness review, but the FFRR, the final flight readiness review. Yeah, and the, it's, it's just... I don't know. It, 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 there's going to be a lot of that running around, unfortunately. You know, the final this, the final that. And uh, it, it is sort of a, a melancholy thing. I mean, it is the end of an era. We've, this vehicle we've been flying now for about 30 years is going to take its final bow. And uh, yeah, it's it's going to be a bittersweet day um, to see this thing vanish. So it will, again, Atlantis will be taking the final bow for the for the entire program. It's going to be sad yet great, and obviously there's going to be a lot of people down there. There was just a report today that said they expect over a million people to be there. Yeah, um, and the funny thing, too, is there was a, a little – speaking about reports, um, USA Today, I guess it was last week, had a very interesting article about uh, – uh, how much these tickets are actually going for? Now, now people have have put, bought these, you know, the Causeway tickets and the uh, tickets at the uh, the visitor center complex, all in good faith for you know anywhere between uh, you know twenty to to sixty five dollars. 
but the demand for these things have been extraordinarily high. Uh, and I believe some travel outfits are, are offering packages sold up for up to, if you're ready for this, $5,000 to go ahead and see this thing. Um, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, wow. Wow is right. I don't, I, I don't know if, if, you know, this is a moment for of history in history for everybody to enjoy and and to go ahead and and try to put a that high of a price tag on this is just I don't know there's just something wrong there. <laughs> yeah, I'm just curious. Um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to walk outside my house a few times, and I'm about 175 170 miles as the crow flies from uh, Pad 39A. And on a night launch with good weather, you know, seen the seen the launch, seen the SRB separation, and uh, in one case actually watched the shuttle uh, climb and then descend to the horizon, which was my best guess on that one. It was within a minute of main engine cutoff that I lost it, you know, down below my horizon. So I'm wondering, uh, what do you think if I put a sign out in front of the house? What do you think I could get for uh, people coming to watch? <laughs> oh, you're bad. That all sounded so nice, didn't it? <laughs> it did. Oh, hey, well, the entrepreneurial spirit is alive and well. What can I say? But, you know, this is Florida, and I'll point out when we talk about launch that uh, uh, it seems that in the past few weeks that summer has kind of been switched on. We're getting more afternoon clouds. We're getting more of that sea breeze effect where the the winds are pushing clouds. They're coming inland. They're popping up as thunderstorms, and uh, anything can happen. We've had more more thunderstorms that I've seen. Which again, I'm in North Florida, North Central Florida, uh, in the last two weeks than we've seen in the previous two months. So weather could be a factor. Everyone. Um, you know, crush fingers, hold your breath, whatever you think will work. Uh, it, it could be one of those days where they give you the percentage of likelihood of launch, and it may not look that good, and it may go and, and be fine, or it could be the other way around. It just depends. We'll wear our rally caps then. Yeah. yeah I'm just trying to see how long the launch window is for it, uh, for this particular flight, and it's kind of tight. Isn't it usually between five and ten minutes? Yeah, it's about ten. Yeah, five exactly. That's exactly what I'm seeing here. Um, uh, launch window opens up at eleven twenty one forty six, and it closes at uh, eleven thirty five five oh three. This is uh, from uh, from Sp- space flight now. And thank you, Bill Harwood, for getting that all all together. Um, I know they usually try to get it towards right in the middle, which I know they have a specific name for that that I'm drawing a blank on, but it's the point where. They have the yeah. best chance of getting to the International Space Station using the, less, the least amount of fuel, etc. That is their in-plane time. That would be it. Thank you. And while we're talking about launch, I'll, uh, I'll pitch in something from the FAA side of the house. I saw a notice that went out to field technicians uh, nationwide, I imagine. I didn't don't really study these things that closely as to where they go. But... Um, for big events, for special events, the FAA has what they call a maintenance moratorium. And basically, it's a, uh, a notice to the guys in the field like me to keep keep your hands off of the equipment. If it ain't <laughs> broke, don't fix it. And in this case, the things that uh, that the FAA is alerting uh, you know, us folks to 
is don't uh, don't take any of these particular systems out of service during launch and landing times. And some of them are, as you would expect, in the immediate area. It's some TACAN facilities, some DMEs, some long-range radars, and some short-range radars. Uh, but also, uh, they bring up, uh, for landing, they bring up White Sands, a couple of places in New Mexico, Edwards Air Force Base, some uh, facilities in California on launch. Uh, they cover a few facilities in Florida. And then it actually, if you were to... Uh, follow the trajectory it goes up the east coast of the u.s uh facility in south carolina one in virginia one a couple in maryland uh cil new jersey uh actually a couple in new jersey new york rhode island maine uh, a few in north carolina some dme sites and a, a dme in boston and so um, the faa supports shuttle launches in a particular way to you know for us to, to not do something when all we have to do is defer it for a day or half a day or sometimes even a few hours. And, uh, and generally, the work that, that we do is something that can be scheduled around. I mean, we do it all the time with weather. We do it with air traffic that asks us to, um, hey, can you not do that today? Can you wait to another day? And, uh, and we do things like that. Of course, if it breaks, you know, the people that are available will uh, – take action to restore services that are part of the national aviation system and uh, and hope that nothing breaks because not everything in the FAA is brand spanky new anymore. <laughs> um, as I've mentioned from time to time, some of the systems I maintain are as old as the shuttle. Mark, why is, why is that? Are they, are they thinking that possibly that, you know, if something goofy happens that, that, any one of these particular stations could come into play to support a, a possible emergency landing at some point? or, or Sure. It, yeah. Ex exactly. And they just want to have the, uh, the nav aids and, and radar systems, particularly some of these TACANs, because Atlantis is, uh, is one of the shuttles that ha they all have different capabilities that I'm not a pilot guy, so um, I, I, I don't keep the big picture in my head. I, I read little bits and pieces and understand it sort of, but uh, TACAN is a navigational aid that gives pilots, and in this case the shuttle, um, both a distance and a bearing to a ground station. And when you have an aircraft with the, uh, the avionics to lock into multiple sites, they get a, uh, a nice uh, kind of a three-dimensional picture of where they are in, in space. And uh, it just provides a little extra measure of safety for, for us to, to not take, you know, one or, or several of these just inadvertently. Because generally, in my area, we're concerned with adjacent facilities. So let's say I've got a site at Ocala. Okay, well, we're not going to take Ocala and Gainesville down at the same time. Mm -hmm. They want to have one or the other because they can overlap and provide coverage there. And, uh, but in the case of something that's, that's going mock how many – yeah uh, right. <laughs> you know you want to you want to cover not necessarily the whole eastern seaboard, but you want to cover uh, facilities that might be critical if they had to make a uh, and, and and I don't know what what category emergency would uh, would would put the shuttle heading into a, an east coast or, or you know field. I, yeah, I'm sure I, it would be a very out of the ordinary because yeah. we, hear, we hear of RTLS and transatlantic abort and things like that mostly. Because I've wondered about that because I know that there's rumors of different 
locations up and down the East Coast that can support the shuttle. For example, I don't know if it's true or not, but I've heard that John F. Kennedy International in New York is a possible diversion site because the runway's long enough, but uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> no, I, I think you're right, Sawyer, um, on that one. Hey, hey Mark, isn't uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, gentlemen, but is, isn't Atlantis the only orbiter still left using the old TACAN system? I thought everybody else, the other two, were using GPS. I haven't uh, studied up on that question, but that was my thought as well. And uh, I wish I wished I'd been thinking of it. I'd ask some of the uh, the shuttle techs that I was around last week, but uh, we'll have to say yes, maybe. Yeah, I, if I recall exactly, because the other two orbiters had uh, Discovery and, and Endeavor had received the GPS upgrade, and I don't think Atlantis had at that point. Um, so I think Atlantis is the only one using uh, TACAN at this point. Well, obviously, well. Yeah, right. It's a moot point, but you know, it's it's just uh, just a point of history, I guess. Now, while we're talking about alternate landing sites, there are times when the shuttle needs to divert from Kennedy Space Center when it's returning to Earth due to weather. Mainly, it'll go to Edwards Air Force Base in California. But many people forget about the shuttle's landing site for STS-3, which is still a backup site to this day for the space shuttle, and that is White Sands Air Force Base in New Mexico. And it appears that it's closing down? Yep. Uh, there's a report out of, I believe, the Almagrado Daily News in um, in New Mexico. And uh, I have to thank uh, Gina for uh, for throwing this, uh, this particular article at us here. Um, but uh, the White Sands Space Harbor, which again, as Sawyer uh, mentioned, uh, was the landing site for STS-3 back in 1982 – will be closing its doors after 35 years, uh, basically ending um, at, at the end of the space shuttle program, uh, which is, uh, you know, which, you know, Atlantis's launch is going to be taking place uh, on July 8th, you know, we hope. Um, but uh, apparently um, uh, there it was a unofficial ceremony on uh, June 13 uh, that honored the long hard work of uh, all the, the White Sands uh, Space Har- Harbor uh, employees. Uh, and and the and the folks that uh, contributed to the shuttle missions over the years, and uh, these folks were constantly on alert uh, during uh, during landings should they be should they be needed. But uh, again and again, at the end of August, this facility will be deactivated. So again, it's just a sign of the times um, that uh, um, that that the shuttle program is indeed indeed coming to an end. I remember the one reason that they didn't like it is because of all the rocks and the sand at White Sands and uh, how as it was kicked up by the wheels, it actually dinged and damaged a bunch of the tiles underneath it as well as the tires. And uh, Columbia needed a lot of remodifying after that one. So also recently, the astronauts, on top of checking the vehicle and everything, the astronauts got a chance to try out their little dry run of launch, which is called the Terminal Countdown Demonstration Test, or TCDT. And while there, they took a little break to ask to answer some questions from some media. And last check, Mark, you were down there and got to ask a question to them, right? I was, and it's it's kind of funny, at least to me. I don't know that anybody else would laugh, but uh, here we are at the end of the shuttle program, and I'm coming in for the from September of last year on through now. And to me, it's it's ironic that that I haven't been there very long and that I'm getting these opportunities to, to be in the midst of some reporters that have been there 
for many, many years, some of them for decades, and uh, that I get my shot at, uh, at asking the question. At the TCDT, here you are with your crew of four. They get out of the van. They, they get a uh, little photo op uh, over away from, uh, away from the crowd. And then they walk over and walk up to the microphone. And the press conference starts. When the act, when the actual uh, pad question and answer session started with the astronauts, Howard Butel, the news chief, introduced the commander, and we started. And he said, "We have 20 minutes for questions. Questions will be limited to one per individual." It's like, oh, I was getting depressed because. Normally, <laughs> there's one or two people at the microphone from the other times I've been there, and you walk up, and you wait for a few minutes, and you get up to the mic, and you get to ask your question. Uh-uh. No. All of a sudden, a line formed out of nowhere, and I'm far enough back that I'm thinking, oh, no. I'm a sinking feeling. I'm not going to get to ask a question at the final TCDT Q&A. And I, <laughs> uh, you know, the first few I'm listening to, and I'm thinking, how long has this taken? Am I going to get my turn? And sure enough, I did. And actually, another half dozen people behind me. And but uh, we have that clip. And wouldn't you know it? The one other time that uh, we were out at the pad and I asked a question, I got to ask. Uh, actually, I didn't ask a particular individual, but it was the pilot that answered and pilot as well on this one. So let's listen to that. Mark Ratterman from Talking Space. A question for whoever can see into the future. Uh, do you do you foresee uh, someday when we'll have ticker tape parades for astronauts that uh, that fly and come home and and celebrate some extraordinary mission? You know, honestly, it, it's not about us. It's about the folks that get these vehicles into orbit and uh, support the vehicle. You know, it's really enough for us just to get that look outside the window once. It's all worth it. But uh, you know, we ought to be celebrating the folks that that have worked an entire career to make these vehicles go into space safely and bring us home safely. So I don't know. You know, there there probably will be ticker tape parades someday, you know, for some folks that, you know, go beyond low-Earth low orbit to an asteroid or to Mars or wherever we decide the destination is. But, you know, I think it should be for all the folks that, that help us get there. What is it with you in coming up with the most elegant questions? Panic, because actually uh, I forget if it was one or two people in front of me pretty much took the question that I actually had in mind to ask. And so it was uh, think fast, come up with an alternate. And I sort of had one, but I really hadn't, uh, didn't have it formed in my head. And, and it seemed like uh, it was a good way to phrase it. And the answer surprised me. Sometimes I'm asking a question of the, uh, the launch team or the, or the astronauts where I sort of have an idea where it's going to go. And, um, in some cases, I'm asking them something because I know they've got important things to say that I want emphasized. And uh, in this case, it was just kind of a, a wild shot and an elegant answer as, as they're so, so, you know, 104% likely to give you. All right. So while we're talking about the end of shuttles, uh, Space Shuttle Discovery and Endeavor are currently both being decommissioned as Atlantis gets ready to launch on July 8th. And uh, Discovery is well onto her way into her decommissioning. And in fact, they let some of the media discover Discovery. And Mark, you were one of those people. Am I right? Some of the media, 
they let yours truly go on board. You betcha. What were they thinking? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I heard uh, the term of uh, kid in a candy store and different things describing, uh, you know, what was the press like, that, that question. And uh, it's interesting. I got there on Media Day, Discovery Media Day, on June 21st. And I was there, oh, let's see, I didn't want to miss my time slot, so I was there about four or four and a half hours early. And uh, one of the one of the guys that I've gotten to know over the past six, seven, eight months um, had just completed his tour. And he sat down with his camera, and he started paging through some of the pictures that he had. And he was talking about the experience and what it was like. And he said one thing that, that certainly was true for me as well is that time flies. You're not going to have enough time. It's going to go really fast, and uh, but you're going to love it. And that was all quite true. Um, where do I start? You know, just just taking a and, – and in terms of numbers, um, I never thought to ask what the total count was of media that were part of this. But uh, on the press release, it said spaces are limited. And I think I put my name in the very, very same day within an hour or two when that release went out. And uh, and I was thinking, yeah, I'll be one of the 10. Well, it was probably more like uh, 60 to 100, maybe 80 or so press that uh, that got to do this. Basically, they were taking groups of 8 to 10 over for one hour period of time. And they probably started at eight or nine o'clock in the morning and they finished up uh, with the last group that went over at uh, I believe four o'clock or five o'clock in the afternoon. And in the group that I was on, there was uh, five of us. It was, we were split uh, five and four. There was a total of nine, four. We all went in the OPF together. And uh, as we walked in, there's a, a desk with uh, a couple of computer terminals and kind of in an overseeing position where I guess you would be checking in if you were a worker. Um, and there sitting at one of the desks is Stephanie Stilson that I had interviewed last September as Discovery's flow manager. And Stephanie Stilson is now the, uh, the holder of a, a new title. She's the Shuttle Transition and Retirement Flow Director. I bet she liked being Discovery's Flow Director better, but uh, she's certainly got an interesting job, and she talked to us and answered questions for 10 or 15 minutes. In fact, if there was one thing that, that made it tough, you know, here you are, you're, you're walking in and you're seeing parts of the shuttle because it's, it, it's kind of surrounded by the scaffolding and work stands and you know, you're going upstairs to get to one area and back down some stairs and, and along underside the underside of the shuttle and then back towards the front, back up some stairs, take a peek over the edge in the payload bay, across the uh, across the nose of the orbiter, uh, you know, walking literally at roughly uh, uh, cockpit panel height, uh, you know, just, just a little bit touch below window height and uh, for the cockpit windows and you, so you're up and down and and then of course around to the crew hatch and uh, but it, the distracting thing was the phenomenal people that we got to talk to and there was no point in our tour of the OPF 
where anybody wanted to stop talking to the technician or to the manager that we were with and move on to the next station. I mean, we wanted to because the light at the end of the tunnel, and that's certainly a 100% opposite way of saying it, but the, uh, you know, the carrot dangled in front of us, you know, as we, as we were imagining the whole way was to be able to go inside the crew cabin. And that was the last stop on our tour. But uh, to be able to talk to, uh, well, aft compartment, lead technician from the facilities aft shop, uh, Dave Blakehorn, he, his work was on the orbiter's main propulsion system. He's worked with a program since 85. Payload Bay, Cliff Semonsky, uh, lead tech in the facility mid-body shop, Payload Bay area that he worked with. He's worked with the program since 87. Brian Elliman. And his area was the facility forward shop. He's the spacecraft operator. He staffed the crew compartment while the orbiters powered up on the ground. And he's been with the program since 2002. Um, Stephanie Stilson, a couple other gentlemen that we talked to uh, under the orbiter that talked about the tiles and, and impressed the socks off of me with things that I probably knew. It was so impressive to walk under Discovery's left wing and have the, the manager I was with point up and say, Remember the the bump that we put on the tile to trip the uh, trip the uh, boundary layer. I'm talking stuff I don't fully understand here, but at a high Mach number, Mach 18, Mach 19, they put a half inch bump four inches long on one of the tiles, and they wanted to see what effect that had on heating effects downstream from it. And he showed me that, and I looked at it, and I said, "Holy cow! It's it's that big and it's that small both. I mean, it it's." It's a it's a it's a noticeable bump, and then he said, and there's the 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 uh, transducer that senses the temperature, and the transducer was back well back on the wing. I thought the sensors for temperature on this were all clustered right around it, but anyway, the the point I'm making is here's all this fascinating stuff to look at, and these top people, the technicians and the managers that make them go, that you're talking to, and didn't know which way to look. I didn't know which way to think. I, you know, so <laughs> much was fascinated by what they were saying, and uh, and Stephanie Stilson talking with her about the retirement process for Discovery, and what plans they have to 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 move. And I asked a question. Well, how is the flow of 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 deservicing the shuttles? How is your flow going compared to the uh, to the museums to the locations that are going to be picking them up as as caretakers? And she said, well, some of them are going to have a temporary facility, and that's one of the things that we looked at was that if we had an orbiter that was ready to go to them, that they had to have a good place to put it that was going to take care of it. If they had construction that was in process and they weren't quite, quite ready, they would still have a good facility to put it in. And so, I mean, every bit of the day, every bit of that hour was interesting. I started referring to it as uh, happy hour, <laughs> and then uh, the 15 minutes that uh, that our group, 15, 20 minutes that our group got to spend in the crew cabin was the happy, happy hour. <laughs> and, you know, honestly, it was. And um, it's it's one of those things that it's tough. <laughs> it's almost tough to relate to seeing the orbiter there in the hangar. The main engine's gone. The forward RCS is gone. Uh, payload bay doors open and you can't really... You don't see the ship. You're seeing parts of it as you walk around it. 
it's tough to put that together and to realize in the same way as when you see it on the pad, when you see RSS rollback and you see the orbiter and the, the stack out there, it, it's, it, it really doesn't all come together. So, uh, <laughs> but it was good. Now, um, getting around to the, uh, some of the, some of the fun stuff. I know everybody looked forward to the fact that we were going to be in the crew cabin and get to talk to uh, one of the technicians there. Well, first you had to go around to, uh, to check in and basically it's empty your pockets. We don't want you guys dropping your lucky nickel in the shuttle and, uh, and not being able to find it and have to come back and spend the night. So, uh, (laughs) so we, we emptied pockets and we put booties on and then we slid down the, uh, down the board through the crew hatch and we're standing up in the mid deck and the mid deck was uh, to me everything about the interior of discovery was smaller than expected uh the mid deck was a was a big space there were i guess four of us uh three of us rather plus the uh the technician that were standing there uh two others there were five total in our group and two of them went upstairs into the uh flight deck and three of us stayed down and there was plenty of room and they had some of the panels off the mid deck lockers that you see in the pictures all of those mid deck lockers were gone um and so you could see through and you could see some of the forward avionics bays that are below the flight deck that are literally in front of you when you're on the mid deck and so you could see the racks of the equipment and i was able to see the connectors and some things that are kind of familiar from my world is space flight rated so i was i was quite impressed and you can see why it takes the phenomenal amount of power of the solid rocket boosters and the uh that giant external tank with the fuel that it carries and the shuttle main engines because um the orbiter is no lightweight bird it's it's a lot of a lot of heavy construction and at the same time when i was at the back of the orbiter looking in you looked at it and it's like man that can take all that power all of that force that the main engines provide with their 104 percent uh you know rated performance and uh and it stays together flight after flight after flight and uh that's of course the the record that that discovery set for 35 flights atlantis is going to have with uh lose track of the number i want to say 25 i think for atlantis forget endeavor's number but um at any rate uh back to the mid deck um i got to uh to kind of slide through uh, another slide board and peek out into the uh, payload bay to to look at the airlock and how small it was and trying to visualize you know two two astronauts uh you know in the airlock in their spacesuits uh tight space really is tight spaces on the flights when they did everything where the shuttle was free flying and not docked to the iss um that was a cozy home and the flight deck uh of course, we saw it with the commander seat in place and the pilot seat in place and the location where you'd have the MS, uh, MS-1 and MS-2 were, uh, were open. And the technician was already up there on the flight deck, and uh, I was the third of three of us to, to climb this little ladder through this little hatch. 
and uh, the two guys that preceded me, one was most of the way across the flight deck, and he was sort of standing crouched over just a little bit. The uh, the gentleman that preceded me, he was on his he was kneeling and taking some pictures, and I poked up through the hatch and I had to stand on the ladder because there really wasn't room for me to get up in there too. And of course we're we're trying to figure out uh, as you come off the ladder what can I grab, you know what can I what can I grab for this next two steps up the ladder and and you know get on my feet or on my knees inside, and uh, it was quite different and. You know, I'm very conscious of uh, of <laughs> where I am and not bumping into anything. And of course, you know, this the sad part is Discovery is uh, being decommissioned. And I guess you don't have to be that concerned if you accidentally flip a switch because um, the same things aren't going to happen anymore. But it was quite impressive. Mark, did uh, I understand that there's a possibility too that there's going to be a del- little bit of a delay, delivery delay? Um, with uh, um, with the orbiters, I, I understand that initially they were looking at a November timeline, but now I'm here. You know, but now um, um, I believe uh, I recall um, from from you know what we were talking about offline that um, uh, Stephanie Stilson indicated that May 12th uh, might be the day that. Uh, we start moving these birds to their new homes. Uh, gee, <laughs> I mean, not, not not May twelfth, April twelfth. Gee, I wonder why that date. Um, mm. That the yeah that that these these birds uh, will be uh, will be going to uh, to their new homes. What about the places that need to actually build facilities? Won't they need more than a year? Yeah, and I guess that's why um, they are uh, they were looking at uh, um, uh, possible hold other holding facilities uh, for. For that, um, I well, specifically, uh, Discovery, of course, has a home in the Smithsonian, and it'll she'll displace Enterprise. Enterprise will go up to the Intrepid, and I believe Stephanie uh, Stilson mentioned that, uh, and it's going to be a leapfrog. I mean, they're literally going to go from from uh, taking Discovery up to DC to then ferrying Enterprise on up to uh, New York, and that there was going to be a temporary facility. For Enterprise until they uh, had a, a permanent home, you know, finished for at the Intrepid Air and Space Air and Sea Museum, rather. Yeah, and I believe too the game plan was to go ahead and, and take Enterprise up on barge the way they did with the Concorde uh, when it arrived. Um, I th- don't think they've got the warm fuzzies about that idea just yet, and they want to make sure that that barge is, is going to support Enterprise. Right, but, but the current goal is to go Discovery, Kennedy, Space Center to D.C., then Enterprise, D.C. to JFK Airport, which then they'll take by ferry to uh, the Intrepid Sierra and Space Museum. Right. I, I, I'll tell you one thing. That's going to be one heck of a photo opportunity to have both Discovery and Enterprise side by side over at uh, um, over at Dulles. That is going to be it's one heck of a nice photo op. The only other time I could think of two vehicles basically right next to each other was that shot of, I believe it was uh, Atlantis and Columbia, as one was being rolled back and the other was being rolled out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I hate to do this. This will give you goosebumps. But one of the report one of the reporters asked the question. They said, "Is any consideration being given to a family photo with the three orbiters?" And the answer we got was, 
that has come up. And that's, that's as far as they would go. Ooh. Wow. Oh, good Lord. I'm getting those Can, goosebumps now. They're coming. Uh, sorry about that. And, of course, now we got to wait and wait and probably wait some more because a lot of that will depend on timing and uh, who knows. <laughs> so I left out one part. Oh, in, do, in, do, in, do pray tell. <laughs> <laughs> which is my style. I just kind of jump around. Uh, in, in preparing to go into the uh, crew compartment, uh, you're in, they referred to it as the white room, or at least the reporters did. And it's a, I uh, wish I could think of what the material it is, but it's a, it's a smooth surfaced uh, kind of paneling. It's not paneling, I hate to say that, but it's a smooth surfaced uh, white uh, ceiling walls and it's an entryway essentially to the orbiter and it had signatures and it's probably 10 feet by by you know 10 feet in 10 feet across and it was full of signatures and they hand you a sharpie and they say here if you'd like to sign your name you know please feel free to to sign along with the astronauts the crews of the flights that have uh been on board Discovery, uh, Prime Minister of, of, of Britain, uh, Margaret Thatcher had signed, uh, wow. many other many other people that were privileged uh, over the years to see the orbiters in their in their operational heyday. Uh, they but, got to sign. But you didn't sign your name, did you? <laughs> well, you know, um, I'd, I'd like to claim that I've got great penmanship, but I don't, and I embarrassed myself just writing W. What did I write? W. <laughs> well, anyway, talkingspaceonline.com. That uh, <laughs> I signed for the show, and so we are you, forever. We are forever memorialized in the uh, white room of OPF2. Thank you, and sir. Ho- Thank you. Hopefully, uh, some parts of that will will end up as being some exhibit somewhere. Oh wow! I, that 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 would really be stunning. And in the meantime, we have a picture of that on our website, which you can take a look at at TalkingSpaceOnline.com, which is the web address you wrote on there. <laughs> and uh, Robert Perlman pointed out he was taking a picture of a spot high up in a corner. I said, uh, what, what is it you're – what are you catching? What are you photographing? He said, that's the, uh, the logo and the signatures of STS-107. Oh, wow. Wow. So continuing on, while Mark's busy signing his name on white room walls, out in Russia, there was a space shuttle back in the Soviet Union days that Russia built. It was called Energia Buran, Energia being the launching system, Buran being their version of the space shuttle. And their only one that flew in space was actually destroyed when a hangar collapsed, which it was in. However, there was one Buran that was sitting along a riverside. And it was just being bombarded by the elements. And what they finally decided to do was take Buran and actually get it repaired. And so the repair of the space shuttle Buran for display is currently undergoing now. Yeah, um, I'm looking uh, – thanks for, for sharing the article, Sawyer. That thing, the, the Buran, mean, Buran meaning snowstorm uh, in Russian – um, I believe it was just a, a training vehicle, if I'm not mistaken, according to the article here. 
And it was just sort of rotting away at Gorky Park. It was never, you know, meant for for spaceflight. It was just just a training vehicle. And as as Sawyer, you pointed out, the the one that actually the flown article was actually destroyed when that that hangar caved in. But it looks like again um, they are trying to go ahead and and preserve their history just as much as we're trying to preserve ours. As it says in the article, just weeks before Baron goes on display at one of the air shows, MAKS, Atlantis is scheduled to fly its last ever one. So that's interesting. Yeah, it's sort of like the end, you know, an end. Well, that era ended a long time ago, but uh, uh, it's interesting to see that they are also uh, looking after their artifacts as well as we are going to be going ahead and looking after ours. So, yeah, we'll see that when it's finished as well. And uh, all the shuttles, including not ones that don't even belong to the United States. Now, continuing on to a little story, you, you might have heard a bo- of a book called The Little Engine That Could. <laughs> well, just recently today, there was a little asteroid that couldn't, as a very small asteroid whizzed within 7,000 miles of our good old blue marble planet here, right? Yeah, this thing was kind of interesting. It flew past us at um, a distance of 7,600 miles um, today on June 27th at about 1 p.m. Eastern Eastern Daylight Time. I'm sorry. Um, But it was only – this thing was only discovered last week. In fact, when they, they they looked at it, they initially thought it was a it was a piece of space junk, one of you know a straight booster or something like that that had been launched because it was so so small. It was somewhere between, um, according to an article that I'm looking at here from uh, uh, the Chicago Tribune, um, it was just only what uh, about 15 to 60 feet wide, um, and. You know, observation. Of course, when they see something like this, they want to make sure that nothing's going to hit us. And uh, uh, data showed that it absolutely had no chance of hit, hitting us at all. But uh, yep, heads down, um, it, uh, it it just uh, came within a hair's breadth of, of us. And once again, it, it kind of underscores the importance of trying to find out where all these near Earth ob- where all these near Earth asteroid objects are. And uh, I don't know that something I'm going to have to go ahead and follow up on for for a later show is where are we with that? We've talked to um, Rusty Schweikert in the past who who was spearheading a project to go ahead and try to hunt for uh, for near Earth asteroids. And uh, this just again, it just sort of underscores the importance of it because we didn't see this thing coming until last week. Which it's not like we've spoken to uh, Rusty Schweikert either on this podcast before regarding that exact issue. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we'll have to go ahead and, and put a – funny thing is we'll have to put a link to our own show in the show notes. But uh, um, the, uh, Yeah, I know. But it, it kind of just, just underscores how uh, uh, how important the topic really is. And, and uh, uh, Mr. Schweikert went ahead and drove that point, point home. Um, very well indeed, and it's it's worth uh, worth a listen to, including his own foundation, the B612 Foundation. Indeed. All right. So with that, I believe we have one final story that doesn't involve the possible destruction of the Earth, <laughs> even though we had no chance of being destroyed. 
And this month, we're going to go down to a runway at the airport KTTS, better known as the Shuttle Landing Facility at the Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida, which is usually home to high-speed space vehicles. Except this time, it was home to a high-speed car. And I believe this car set a record. Am I right? Yeah, it's interesting to uh, to think of, of less than uh, traditional uses for the shuttle landing facility. But here, uh, a team that wanted to set a, uh, a speed record found uh, the perfect place to do it. And it says it was extensively modified. Yeah, man, I guess. 223 miles an hour in the standing mile. Yeah, that would be modified. And uh, the gentleman that drove it said he was happy with it. He said he took it up to 210 the first day without trying and then uh, up to 223 to set the world record on June 17th. But uh, he also mentioned another vehicle that they brought out. They had a Dodge Challenger. They drove it to over 170, beating the previous record for that model by almost 30 miles an hour. And uh, they say the shuttle landing facility is long enough that they don't have to be concerned with uh, popping the drag chute to get them slowed down at the end of their run, that they've got plenty of room for braking and uh, and slow it down. So that's interesting, and sound like they're planning to come back and uh, do some more testing, too. Yeah, the interesting thing here, too, is I'm reading the article that's on uh, NASA.gov, and I, I didn't know this, but apparently NASCAR teams and uh, IndyCar teams are using the SLF for testing. Apparently, uh, according to the NASA.gov article on the story, uh, Joe Gibbs Racing has has used the the SLF, and apparently, um, uh, a few uh, IndyCar teams have also used the uh, the shuttle landing facility for for testing. So, I just thought I'd throw that in there, a bit given the fact that uh, we've got an interesting little race coming up this weekend at, at Daytona. So. <laughs> And is it any irony that they drove a Dodge Challenger, which landed twice at the Kennedy Space Center? Oh, that's that's very true. <laughs> that is very, very true. And also the Space Shuttle 4GT half. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Yeah, well, it might as well have been. I mean, 223 miles an hour, shoot, you can win all kinds of dollar bills with that thing. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty impressive, saying that when the shuttle lands, it's already close to 300 miles an hour, so yeah. nothing new for the for the landing strip there. Go ahead and rent, rent out uh, the SLF and, and, and make runs down the runway. You know, that'd be kind of neat. <laughs> I'd love to see one of those. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and on that note, as much as I know we don't want this show to end, I think we should end it here. So I'd like to thank everybody for joining us. Thank you, especially Gene McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer. This was a fun evening. Thanks a lot. And another special thank you to Mark Ratterman for joining us. Uh, no thanks needed. Last week at the TCDT and Discovery Media Day, I had way more fun than anybody should uh, <laughs> should have. And thanks again for the opportunity to represent Talking Space and and uh, and be there. And Mark, Mark, I want to go ahead and say thank you for representing us so elegantly. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. You're quite welcome. A pleasure. And again, we'd like to thank you for listening to this episode. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. Mm-hmm.